As as you know, we're continuing on this theme of the divine nature of Abba, or the divine nature of our Father. And we took a little break um, last week to hear three powerful stories, three testimonies. And while we took a break from the series, I don't think we took a break from the heartbeat of what it is that God is doing um, in us here at The Rock or as part of this series of love. They were three very different stories, but three equally powerful um, testimonies of the goodness of of the Father's love. And I was so blown away um, from uh, by um, what um, Lawrence and Nick and Cena had to share, and I'm sure the rest of you were as well. Hey, so it was a, it was a powerful time. Um, this morning we're, we're getting back to uh, to First Corinthians 13. Um, does anyone know off the top of their head which which one we're up to? A few laughs, and thank you, Chris. Thank you, the elders, you know, leading the way. Love is not provoked. If anyone else doesn't know, it's always on the website. Just a little hint. <laughs> um, so this morning we're going to be looking at love is not provoked. Um, and now that word provoked. When, when you hear the word provoked, what, what's your first reaction? What, what, does, what does it mean to be provoked? Any takers? Anger, yep. Anything else? Sorry, I, I can't hear anybody. Egged on, yep, yep, to some extent, yep, cool. Those are all uh, very valid and very real parts of what it means to be provoked. But actually there's a lot more to this this word provoked than just anger, you know, or just frustration. Um, it's normally thought of as those things, but actually there's a, a much deeper uh, meaning for us to, to see here. So this morning it's going to be a little bit teachy. Are you guys cool with that? Normally on a Sunday morning it's a bit more preachy, you know. Um, this morning it's going to be a little bit more teachy. And um, sorry guys who are at school and have to come on Sunday to hear more teaching, but actually, this kind of teaching, the way that Jesus teaches is, is more than just an intellectual exercise where you have to, um, to grasp some sort of certain concepts. Actually, he's, when, when, he, when he says, come to me and I'll teach you, he's not just talking about understanding words. He's talking about actually coming and learning from him and becoming like him. So this kind of teaching is not, an, like I said, it's not intellectual, it's spiritual which means that if you hear a teaching word that doesn't change you, it really isn't the kind of teaching that Jesus came to bring. And so while this is more of a, um, a teaching word, it doesn't lose, it's not to lose any of its sharpness, its power, its impact in changing your life, okay? So I hope that you've come here to be changed this morning, to be challenged, to have your mindsets um, renewed and altered. You know, Jesus says, um, in his, at the start of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. And repentance is to change the way you think, to allow your mindsets and your attitudes to be reshaped and redefined so that the power of the kingdom could be made real within you, that you'd actually be a new creation, a new person. So this is a different kind of teaching, maybe to the kind of teaching you've ever heard before. So, Love is not provoked. So the Greek word love, uh, sorry, the Greek word provoked is periskino. And it means this, it literally means a sharp 
edge, a sharp edge. And the translation means it means to incite or jab someone to stimulate their feelings or emotions. Or it also means to provoke feelings, spurring someone on to action. So there you go, Pete. That was a pretty biblical definition, mate. Nailed it. So to incite, to jab someone, I kind of get the idea of a bit like a, a cattle prod, you know, like cows are just chilling unexpectedly and once thing, boom, you know, like there's this like, there's this shock factor, you know, all, like there's a reaction that comes that you weren't expecting. You're just minding your own business and this cattle prod just jolts you, and it, it moves you, it gets you to, to respond in a way that you wouldn't have expected. Hope you're awake. <laughs> Is that enough of a prod? <laughs> so when the Bible talks about being provoked, it's not just talking about anger. It's talking about this, this jabbing, this stimulation of feeling or emotion. They're talking about the spurring into action. But the source has come not necessarily from God because it says that love is not provoked. Love is not spurred into action, and love is not stirred by, at its core by feelings and emotions. Interesting. Is that a different definition of being provoked than what you might have heard before? Not necessarily anger, but being moved by your feelings and emotions. Now, that in some ways is baffling, right? Does that mean that God is emotionless? Does it mean that he doesn't feel, that he doesn't experience anything? When I was pondering on this, it made me think of a, a number of times in the Bible when you have this scene where Jesus turns up to the temple, to the house of God, and he sees and he looks out at the money changers who are like selling stuff to, to make money in the household of God. And Jesus, he... he the way that he responds to the situation is he thinks, oh, I don't know what to do. And he goes away and he makes a whip of cords. So, and he pulls it out, whoopsh. And he goes and drives the money changers out of the temple and says, hey, get out. This is my father's house and you've made it a den of thieves. And it says that zeal for his father's house would consume him. Now, was Jesus not provoked? Was he not stirred? Was he not roused to, to anger and action and to make something happen? Maybe. Maybe he was. I don't know. What about in John 11 where Jesus is at a death, at, at the death of Lazarus, and his sisters call him over, and, and you see here this Man, Jesus, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Does anyone know what it is? Oh, you all know it. <laughs> Jesus wept. And so you see this such intense passion. And yet, how do we reconcile this seemingly emotionally driven or feeling-based response with a love that isn't provoked? Are you as baffled as I am? Is the Bible not full of such absolute contradictions? Does that, maybe we should just pick and choose from the Bible and just pull out the bits that make sense and leave the rest. 
that would be so much easier. But like I feel like I've said a number of times and we've heard many times from the pulpit here, this is why we must rightly divide the word of truth. We've got to go beyond the words of the page and understand the word itself, to understand the heartbeat of God and know what it is that the scriptures are proclaiming and saying that goes deeper than just the outward form of things. And so love is not provoked But let me tell you, it certainly is invoked. Have you heard that word before? Invoked sounds similar and looks similar on the outside, but has a very different source. Now the word invoked, it means this, it means to call on God or something divine. That's not a biblical definition. I couldn't find the word invoked in the the Bible, but I looked it up. Um, in the dictionary. So even though this isn't a biblical definition, it's still, th- this is what the secular world say. It means, uh, what did I uh, where am I on my notes here? Uh, to, to be, uh, so to be invoked means to call on God or something divine for inspiration and support. It means to call forth or to cause. So When you're provoked, you're jabbed and you're emotionally manipulated and stimulated to react to a certain situation. But actually, Jesus is calling us as the church of God into a deeper response than that. To be invoked is to have, well, like I said, it's to call forth. So to be invoked is to have that divine nature of Abba, that divine nature that lives inside of you, to be called forth or spurred. One, to be provoked. The source is self-centered. It's a reaction. To be invoked is to be God-centered, where God is called out of you and you respond. React or respond. To be provoked is to react to everything going on around you. To be invoked is to be moved by the divine heartbeat of the Father, to have the divine nature of God called out of you. To be provoked is to react as Adam did. To be invoked is to respond as Christ would. To be invoked is to live by the flesh. It's feelings, it's its emotions. Oh, sorry, to be provoked. My goodness, lucky you guys are listening. Good job, yeah, yeah. To be provoked is to live by the flesh. To be invoked is to be moved by the Spirit. Love is not cold, hard, and emotionless. It's just moved by a greater and deeper source. It's not unfeeling, it's not unemotional, but the emotions don't define how it responds in certain situations. And so this love that I'm talking about is the divine nature of our Father, but it's to be our divine nature because we're sons and daughters of the living God. So when you hear about this love this morning, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, and see the way that he lived as a divine opportunity for you. 
not because you've tried harder, made things happen, spurred yourself to action, but because you've received that divine nature, the source of life on the inside that's changed you. Is that cool? Do you feel like you can incline your ears to hear in that way this morning? Hearing through the lens of faith that everything that's being shared, everything that's in the life of Christ is actually possible for you because of his nature that dwells and lives within you. It says he's given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of a divine nature. So that's the divine call. That's the invitation of God that we all have. Now, I feel like this word about love that's not provoked is such a timely message. And so we heard from, from Greg a few weeks back um, following the um, the shootings in Christchurch, and really the, the response that I heard from really everyone throughout New Zealand is that people were deeply provoked by what had happened um, a, a few weeks back. I heard from my workmates and our you know, um, colleagues that, um, where I worked that you know, there was such a mixture of grief, of anger, of bitterness, of, um, of despair, such a, a mixture of emotions that had spurred people to action. And we see that in, in the government, you know, so something like, like this happens and all of a sudden there's a, a, a quick um, push to get gun law reform put in place. But it's a response that's provoked. It's come from a, a situation that's moved people to action. But has it been invoked? Has it come from seeing the best possible need for people and being able to go through a policy process that actually comes up with the best solution? I'm not sure. They're questions to think about. So this morning I'd like us to look at a particular um, passage which I think really does um, show us the difference between a love that isn't provoked but a love that really is invoked. So if you've got your Bibles, um, you can turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And this is where we're going to sit for, for most of the morning. Now this passage has it all. It's got the ups and downs. It's got emotions. It's got everything. We see here Jesus performing one of his most incredible miracles raising a man from the dead, and we see one of the most deep and profound responses of a heart that is so beating for people in the passage that we talked about before when Jesus is, is weeping. And so I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It's a really long passage, but, uh, but I'd um, really encourage you to go and, um, go and read it in your own time. So, John chapter 11, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So we have this situation where, uh, where Mary and Martha have a, a brother, Lazarus, who's sick. Now, this is the same Mary who, um, who um, broke a year a perfume that cost a year's worth of wages on Jesus' feet and wiped um, his feet with her hair. So these guys have got history. There's, there's a connection there. There's a, um, there's a, there's a friendship and, and, and a bond there. And so Mary and, and Martha come to Jesus and say, Jesus, by, our brother is sick. He's on his deathbed. 
And Jesus responds and he says this, he says, this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that God might be glorified. And so Jesus responds to, to Mary and Martha, and yet in the midst of this chaos, he decides, look, I'll just, I'll just kick back and I'll relax for a couple of days. Jesus, the great miracle worker, in the, in the face of one of his close friends being sickened on his deathbed, decides, oh, I'll just, I'll just take it easy. I'll sit and I'll wait um, for a few days and I'll, I'll see how we go. When he finally decides to, to show face and turn up, you know, Martha says to him, look, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says this, he says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, uh, Martha says to him, I know that he'll, he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus has greater and deeper plans than just resurrection and going to heaven when he dies. He has a resurrection life and power that's for Lazarus, but is also for his sister Martha and Mary. So Jesus looks and he sees the state of everyone rushing around and all the chaos and all the people that are provoked and all the emotions that are flaring at this, the, the death of, um, of, of Lazarus. And he is deeply moved. And he prays to the Father, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those around him. And so that's a little snapshot of the story. Um, but now let's, let's do a little bit, we call it a deep dive into what it is that's actually going on here. So if you've got your Bible, verse number four is, where, is what we're going to look at. So I'll read out the first little bit. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So verse 4, Jesus says this, he says, uh, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. What is the glory of God? Does anyone know? Um, we, we did look at it for about five to six months, just before we started the series. <laughs> any takers, any takers? Christ in us. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you, Sarah. The glory of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. See, Jesus has a certain kind of perspective. When everyone else is stirred and stimulated by emotional feelings, he sees the divine potential for the glory of the Father to be formed within the hearts of the people that are part of that situation. He sees it not as loss, but as divine opportunity. His emotions weren't jabbed. He wasn't proked with a cattle prod. 
He wasn't provoked and stimulated to earthly feelings. No, because he saw through the lens of the resurrection. He was invoked with the heartbeat of the Father that stirred and stimulated him from another source. I wonder what our current view of life is and the challenges that we go through. Do we see our hard times as divine opportunity, perhaps even a better opportunity to have Christ's life formed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit than in the good times? Just a question. So verse 6, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that brings us uh, brings me to the first point. Canal, if you're happy to whack that on the board, my man. Point number one, he's got the topic as well. Point number one, love is not provoked just to meet earthly needs. It's invoked by the power of an internal promise. Jesus' good friend is sick and on his deathbed. And he stays two days longer in the place that he was. This man who has worked incredible miracles is perfectly content to sit back and relax while a person who's incredibly close to him is sick and on his deathbed. Is that not, not a bit of a jarring response? Especially for someone who knew him so well. Does it seem cold and heartless unfeeling, unemotional? Why would he not meet the immediate need that was right in front of him? Because he saw beyond the immediate need into the ultimate plan and purpose of God, which wasn't just a healing, it was resurrection life. You know, it says of this new nature that's to live inside of us. It says the wind blows where it blows. Uh, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it was going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a movement as the wind blows that he is moving and moved and, and blown by not the situation around him, but the heartbeat of God that lived within him. Now, I feel like for myself, there's a, an example of this in, in, my recent, um, in my recent work life that really has highlighted to me that you know, the difference between a love that's provoked to meet earthly needs and a love that's invoked to meet an ultimate promise and purpose. And so for, for some of you will know that I had worked for the last number of years at, at Work and Income. Um, it's, a great, it's a great place to work, contrary to uh, popular opinion. <laughs> um, but at Work and Income, does anyone know the two things that Work and Income is involved in? Work and Income. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. So there's two parts. There's, there's the income side. There's the benefit side. And that's what... When, when people think you know that you're working at Working Income, normally they just think 
job seeker benefit, and that is true. That's a, a, a good chunk of what we do. But also there's the work side as well. So it's about supporting people into meaningful and sustainable employment and to be able to provide for themselves. So there's two things going on. And you may have seen over the last kind of year or so in the news, there's been a lot of media about um, the way that there's been so uh, many pressing needs, especially housing needs. You know, people are really struggling to find affordable housing. People are struggling to, you know, to pay the bills. And because of these increasing pressures, um, there's been greater expectations put on on the staff at all the the work and income service centres to meet the immediate and uh, the immediate needs that are coming in the door day in day out to help people find housing. To, and because of that, people and because of the housing um, increase in prices, people don't have money for food, uh, people don't have money for for clothing. There's a real flow on effect. So things are are really um, um, difficult when that starts to happen. And so it got to the stage where things were so tight that they decided that something needs to be done. And so they, put, they started to pull all the staff who were involved in supporting people into work and pull them across to the income support side to just help meet the daily needs that were coming through the door, providing food grants, um, helping people find housing and all that sort of thing. But what they found is that that actually didn't make the situation any better because all of a sudden... The proactive side of work took a toll to meet the immediate needs. And while it happened to meet the need for that one day, and that the person who needed a food grant or needed help with housing was supported in the moment, taking away the proactive service meant that there was 10 more people coming through the door who needed more support because they weren't being supported into work. And so at first, as an office, we we had to think, man, we've got to meet the immediate need. But actually, in meeting the immediate need, we created a bigger and even more serious problem for ourselves And that all of a sudden, the benefit numbers started to rise and we've got all these people that need help with even more people that need food, accommodation. It's a bit of a dilemma. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, actually, you've got to get back to basics and see what is the original primary purpose and intention of why we're here. And for MSC, it's to support people to be safe, strong, and independent. And how can you support people to be independent when you're only giving them a food grant and not supporting them to be able to provide for themselves? But yeah, it takes a certain kind of manager and a certain kind of person to be able to say, sorry, we're not going to be able to meet your immediate need today. We've got something better for you. We want to support you to be independent. And so it takes guts from a leader to be able to have those kind of conversations, to be able to say no to one thing and to say yes to another. And yet, in the midst of this, I felt like the Holy Spirit was really speaking to me about us as a family and us as the church and saying that for so many are consumed with the daily life and consumed with the daily grind, desperately trying to meet the everyday things of life that are consuming and overwhelming, but forgetting about the proactive, forward-moving life that would ultimately, if you prioritized it, set you free from the things that you were struggling and striving with. Now, if you're in a position where family life, work life, anything in life is starting to overwhelm you, 
I've got good news. I've got great tidings today that the kingdom of God is at hand, that there's a greater life and power on the inside of you that can set you free from the need to devote your life just to earthly things. In fact, it says, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all other things will be added. That if you are consumed by meeting daily needs, even good, right needs, you may miss out on eternal glory. But if you pursue eternal life, and if you pursue a kingdom being formed on the inside of you, you'll receive a capacity to rise above those needs more than just for the day, but but for the rest of your life and for eternity. This is the powerful church that he's causing us to be. But you've got to be strong. You've got to prioritize. You've got to be the leader of your life and the leader of your household and of your family. And you've got to be able to say, actually, no to this and yes to this. But in saying no and in saying yes, you're not actually saying no and yes, you're saying yes to him. And you're saying yes to taking things out of your hands and putting them into his, who knows every hair on your head. He knows the hunger in your kid's belly. He knows the emotional needs that they have. And he says, hey, trust me. Trust me. Seek me first and I'll put things in line. I'll reorder your steps. I'll form a kingdom life on the inside of you that gives you the capacity to do this and this, not one or the other. So love is not provoked just to meet earthly needs. It's invoked by the power of an eternal promise that will ultimately fulfill those needs. I really do feel like there's something here that's for us. And I'm not normally one to push and labor a point. But if you're struggling just to get by with daily life, I would really encourage you to try a new and living way today. For a moment, just put those things to the side. Just put the struggle and strain the, the noise, the, the, the workplace stress, the kids, the, just put it to the side just for a moment and posture and position yourself to receive from him and to say in your heart, commit your heart back to him and say, I'm seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness today. This is more important to me than any other thing. It's more important. It's more important to live for him and to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness than to be caught up in the daily grind and not know how to get out of it. And you know, for us as an organization, it required strong management to say, this is what we're going to do. And they did. And it was fantastic. And can I encourage you, make that decision for yourself and for your household and for your family today. We're seeking first the kingdom. And let me tell you that there's a divine life and power that will enter on into the inside of you. It really is a new and living way. But you have to be prepared to seek and ask and knock to have that life.
formed within you. So back to our story. Verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. They're upset, they're distressed, they don't know what's going on. This is at the point where Lazarus has passed away. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Point number two. Thanks, Canel. Love is invoked by the will and heartbeat of the Father and not provoked just to meet people's expectations. So Martha had a measure of faith. She had faith for a miracle and she had faith for a future resurrection. But she had certain expectations connected to Jesus and who she believed him to be. And she was confused that he wouldn't meet the immediate need of her brother. She knew that he was a healer, but yet she didn't know why he wouldn't have come to his rescue. See, she was concerned and more interested in what Jesus could do for her and for her family than what Jesus could have done in her and in her brother who was on his deathbed. You know, one thing that has really been pressing on my mind recently, probably because of the nature of of work that I'm in, is the difference between coming to God for our welfare as opposed to having his, his glory formed in us. See, Martha was coming to Jesus hoping for a miracle. And when she saw that that miracle wasn't going to happen, she was hoping for a future miracle that he'd be raised from the dead. But what, he, what she couldn't see, she was looking at Jesus for what he could do for her, but not what he could do in her. And so that is the same for us. In this situation here, we see a, a great divide between something that's outward and something that's inward. Something that's temporary and something that's eternal. Something that will last for a short time and something that's infused with eternal glory. Many people saw Jesus in in a whole range of different ways. You even see him on the cross as people are casting lots for his clothing. This Jesus who has gone through and paid the price for the sin of the world and reconciliation with the Father and the people at the base of the uh, the cross are more concerned with the clothes on his back than the power of a resurrected life that he was bringing them into. They saw him as a prophet. They saw him as a healer, as a good person. 
I was just reading this week that Jesus has an encounter in the temple, and he turns up to the temple with his disciples, and the 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 um the temple attendant sees him, and he's indignant. He's like, "What's going on? This man didn't pay his temple tax." So Jesus, who is the Son of God, comes into his father's house, and the attendant is more concerned about him paying his two cents for being there than he is about receiving from God himself. Now that's a different perspective. Love is invoked by the will of the Father, not provoked to meet people's expectations. So Martha had expectations on Jesus that there would be an external work that was given, that was done for her. But he was more concerned with a deep and eternal work that was going to take place within her. Verse 33. Verse 33. Moving along. All right, so this is obviously uh, Lazarus um, has died, um, and now it's Mary's turn. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come uh, uh, came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Here we see this great uh, move of Jesus where he is stirred in a way that we don't see pretty much anywhere else in the Bible. And I have to ask the question, why? Why is it that he was so deeply moved? He had seen people die before. He had seen people sick before. Why was he so deeply impacted? Was it because of his close personal connection to Martha and Mary and Lazarus? Maybe. Was it that he had previously promised that the sickness wouldn't end in death and now Lazarus was dead? And he was upset that he had been found out that his words weren't true. Was it that he was so upset that someone that he knew had died and was provoked with all kinds of feelings and emotions? Now hear me when I say this, I'm not about not being emotional, especially at the death of a, of a family member or someone close to you. But I feel like we heard such a powerful testimony from Cena um, last week who shared in the midst of such turmoil in her family and the death of... Um, um, those that were closest to her, that there was a, a response that came out of her which wasn't, which hadn't been provoked, but had been, but where she had every reason to react in anger and fear to the person who had potentially killed her family members, but was able in that moment to forgive and to give mercy and grace. And we see that for her, that wasn't void of emotion. So that's not what I'm saying here. It's not emotionless. Jesus 
wept. He was deeply moved, but he was stirred by another source. Let's have a look at this passage. Listen, listen very carefully to this. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So who did he see? Mary or Lazarus? Mary. Jesus looked at the situation, and he was deeply moved, but he wasn't moved by the death of Lazarus. He was moved by seeing that his disciples, the church of God, were provoked and had lost their sight of what was ultimately important. And he was deeply moved to the point of weeping. Not because of an external situation, but because of the heartbeat of the Father that was stirred and moved for a greater and eternal purpose than just an earthly life. Isn't that different? Isn't that interesting? When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, Love isn't emotionless at all, but it has a perspective that's bigger than the here and now. He knew that he could raise Lazarus from the dead with a word, and he did. He wasn't indifferent to the fact that they had emotions and that they were stirred, but he simply had a life within him that could see beyond the temporary here and now, beyond the need, beyond being provoked to respond in a certain way, that he could pursue the will of the Father, which was for the resurrection, life, and power of God to be formed, not just in Lazarus and his physical raising from the dead, but he saw the situation as charged with divine potential for the church of God, Mary and Martha and those who were following him, to enter into the fullness of life that was available in him. Isn't that a completely different perspective and way of seeing things? He wasn't hard and unemotional. He was just stirred and stimulated by something much greater. He wasn't provoked. He was invoked by a divine life that lived within him. Love is invoked by the heartbeat of the Father and not provoked by the circumstances and situations around it. Did we do point number three, Canel? Did we? We didn't. I'll just read it out now. We, that, I was pretty much just talking to it. But point number three is love is not provoked by self-centered emotion. It is, sorry, love is not provoked by self-centered emotion. It is invoked by divine life and compassion. And so we know how the story ends. Jesus prays to his father. He says that not that he needed to, having known what God was going to do from the beginning, but he says that he prays for the sake of the people that were listening so that they may come into everything that he had on offer. And he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And we see a man who's raised from the dead. But more than that, we see a situation that Jesus has taken hold of 
where the people he was working with would have an opportunity not to have their brother raised from the dead, but to have a life formed in their hearts that would be beyond death, a life that really was eternal, everlasting, and forever. So, Father, I pray that we would enter into this life